Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Laurie Campbell here joining us now. Head of U.S. equity strategy at RBC Capital Markets. Laurie, thank you. Tom's going to have a drink. He's going to settle down. Let's start right here. <laughs> this equity market within a couple of percentage points from all-time highs. We're doing this in the face of slowing growth yeah. in China. We're doing this in the face of a conversation about higher interest rates at the Federal Reserve. What does the resilience of this market say to you, Laurie? Look, I, I think the resilience of the market has been absolutely remarkable. Um, and I think, you know, one of the things that we noticed last week, frankly, as we went through earnings, uh, the big banks were talking about how much cash consumers have sitting in their bank accounts. Um, and so when we think about just the underlying appetite that's out there from both corporates and consumers, um, just that strength of the balance sheet is something that you know, really has made talk of a growth scare very premature over the last month or two. So we've got some clear speed bumps. The central banks are one of them. Um, but at the end of the day, the balance sheets are fine. The consumers are in great shape. The appetite is very, very healthy. And I think that's allowed investors to look through some of these supply chain issues. Oh, talking about the supply chain issues, Laura, I'd love you to pick up on that. In your recent note, you said there are signs in the data that supply chain disruptions are peaking. What are those signs? So, you know, one of the things we've been talking a lot about, Lisa, over the last few weeks is if you look at the relationship between global COVID cases and freight costs, global COVID cases tend to be a leading indicator, a very loose one by about one to two months, but a leading indicator nonetheless. And guess what? A couple of weeks ago, we actually started to see some very modest declines in freight costs. So that's one of them. It's still very early days. We'll see if it ends up sticking, but that's one of the glimmers of hope we've seen. Some of the others we've seen, frankly, are looking at regional Fed surveys where we've looked at indexes on delivery times and backlogs um, and orders that are hard to fill. And we're not seeing outright improvement on those indicators yet, but we are starting to see a modest improvement in the rate of change, so growth that's a little bit slower. And that's something we talked about with freight costs about a month ago or so, that we had started to see the rate of growth start to come in. We start, we're talking about that with global COVID cases over the summer. These rates of change, when they start to improve, that's a necessary precondition to getting outright relief. And we think that we're starting to see that in a lot of different parts of, of the data. Laura, Lori, then does this mean that it's time to start buying uh, consumer discretionaries, industrials, materials? So look, we're actually neutral on all those sectors. We never went to a full-on bear tilt. We did downgrade materials at the beginning of August because we noticed that the rate of upward revisions was starting to decelerate. What I've told people is that if you want to bottom fish in one of those supply chain-oriented sectors, I think materials is probably the safest place to do it just because the valuations there are already pretty cheap. Industrials and consumer discretionary are still looking pretty expensive in the big cap world, but materials has had a nice valuation story all along. And I would just add, Lisa, you know, one of the things we've been talking a lot about the last couple of weeks is if you look at industrials and materials, the rate of upward revisions has just fallen uh, like a like a rock. I mean, it's just gone straight down. And we're actually seeing levels of upward revisions that are consistent with bottoms in that particular indicator when you're not in a big recession. So, you know, we do think that there's a good chance that a lot of these supply chain pressures are baked in. Lori, the gloom crew is taking a view of earnings as being problematic. You flat out say they're wrong. You say there's a positive tilt sector to sector, company to company with your analysts. Discuss that. When you listen and read your analysts, what are you listening and reading? 
So it's a, it's a great question, Tom. And once a quarter, we do a check-in with all of our analysts. We basically survey our analysts across the industries we cover. And we just say, what do you think in terms of performance for the outlook for the industry you cover? But also, what do you think about fundamentals, policy, valuation? Um, and what we found basically, Tom, is that they're still looking for a pretty strong outlook over the next six to 12 months. They still have very favorable views on the fundamental backdrop, very favorable views on cash deployment, which is actually the area they're most bullish on. The valuation views have gotten a little bit better since the last survey in June. They're cool on policy, they're concerned about margins, um, but on balance, they see pretty good indicators over the next six to 12 months. And we have to listen to that. That's the boots on the ground feel. Even on supply chain issues, Tom, I was frankly floored that only a handful of them told me it was a major problem for their industries. Most of them were in the moderate problem camp, and a lot of them told me it simply wasn't a relevant issue. Laurie, year-end next year, what's the number? So we're still at 4,900, which from where we are today is about a 9% gain. You know, it's funny, I get accused by some investors of being too bearish. I get accused by a lot these days of being too bullish. It's a pretty trend-like forecast. It's not heroic, um, but we do think that there is room for this market to continue to move up in the year ahead. It's going to be a slower pace than what we've seen. We're removing some of that accommodation. Um, but nonetheless, we do think the bones of this economy are very strong. And I'll tell you, John, I have not heard anything in the last you know, sort of couple weeks in this early part of recording season that's made me change that view. Laurie, thank you. Constructive on a year ahead. Laurie Cavasina there of RBC Capital Markets. Laurie, great to kick off the week with you. This is a really, really important conversation. It's two parts. It's the institution and it's the chief economist. The institution is a conference board and they really look at the granularity that's out there. Think Alan Greenspan. Dana Peterson joins us this morning. Dana, I love what you say. Watch what they do, not what they say. You're fairly optimistic on consumption. Yes, we are. Uh, certainly, when we look at the August and September retail sales data, even abstracting away from higher prices, consumers came back and they spent, even amid the Delta variant. Now, unfortunately, the better readings in August and September won't make up for the abysmal reading that we saw in July. But again, July was really the start of the Delta variant. And uh, we, when we look at the data regarding infections, they're starting to come off. Um, and so we have very good momentum heading into the fourth quarter. We had very good momentum into the fourth quarter. Is that in is that in the central bank view right now? Is the central bank looking at that, saying everybody calm down? I mean, is, is that where you go? The central banks, the Fed's got it right. <laughs> well, I think the central bank is saying, look, we really need to watch the data here. Um, and certainly when we look at consumer spending heading into the fourth quarter, it could potentially be constrained, not because of lack of demand. There's very strong demand for buying things um, and also rising demand for services. Indeed, many people will be traveling, but it's really about inventories, inflation and transportation costs and also labor costs that have risen. Um, inventories are clearly lean because you're having issues producing amid the Delta variant. And also once you move those products across the seas, it's really hard to offload them and then move them by trucking around the country. And certainly prices have risen pretty aggressively, and we can talk about that. But certainly that may put off some consumers from buying. 
Meanwhile, Dana, uh, we've got uh, Mr. Blanchflower over at Dartmouth screaming at the screen, probably watching this, saying, did you not read my report? You have read his report uh, saying that typically when consumer confidence rolls over to the extent that it has, it does portend recession. And you kind of dismiss it. Why do you not necessarily take his point that when you get such a decline in consumer confidence, that is a telltale signal of something negative happening in the economy? Sure. Well, a few things. And um, we did look at the report. We did not ignore it, uh, first off. And uh, he's right. There are many instances when you see a dip, a significant dip in the expectations gauge within our consumer confidence report. And that did follow recessions. However, there were at least six or seven, maybe even eight other instances where you did not see a recession. Um, also, it's very important to look at the level so the level of expectations is right around where we were back in 2017. I don't remember anyone really thinking we were going into a recession other than the fact that, well, the cycle's been long, but we know cycles don't die of old age. Um, and then also when you look at the details beneath the expectations gauge, there are more people who are expecting economic conditions and just general conditions to improve relative to those who think things are going to get worse. So those are our views. <laughs> well, but Dana, how fast does the economy have to grow, given how much debt we have, given how much we've leveraged up this economy and are relying on consumers to deploy their cash? Sure, that's a great question. But also when we look at the U.S. economy, we're probably going to grow around five and a half, six percent this year in 2021. And then probably slow to four. And even if we slow to three or even 2%, that's still really astounding. The economy grew on average 2.2% in the decade following the great financial crisis. And even just before the pandemic, we were growing around two and a half percent. So if we slow to 3% next year, we're still growing well above potential and even above the pace that we saw uh, prior to the pandemic. And just speaking of debt, uh, certainly you did have a lot of fiscal stimulus that padded people's um, uh, wallets. But when we think about what people use that money for, a third of it was saved, a third of it was invested, and then only a third of it was consumed. So right. that means right. there's still a lot left for people to spend on. Dana, I want you to go back to the heritage of the conference board, truly back decades, folks, to World War II and, and on from that. You see the glass half full. What is the major misjudgment on Q4 Q1, Q2 of next year? Sure. I think that, uh, well, certainly we're going to have the whole debt ceiling and uh, budget crisis uh, debacle issue return to us in December. So there's still risk of a shutdown. I think inflation really is the biggest issue that we're looking at. We're expecting that prices are going to continue to rise on a year-on-year basis through the end of the year. And there are big questions about how quickly they slow. There's some factors that are just not going to go overweight overnight. Uh, indeed, when we look at the semiconductor shortage, that's driving up prices for cars and high-tech goods. That's not going to be resolved overnight. And certainly, uh, when we look at other areas of inflation, um, rents, they were depressed throughout the pandemic. So we should expect that they're going to rise again, and that's going to put upward pressure on core inflation. So I think inflation certainly is one of the bigger risks that we're seeing in the short run for the U.S. economy. Dana, just brilliant, as always, really brilliant. Dana Peterson there of the conference board on this economy right now. There is no debate tomorrow in the 11 o'clock hour. I will brave it once again. John Farrell coming along to hold my hand. 
I'll get my booster shot. I've been actively waiting for that. I took the first appointment I could get. It's the only reason Joshua Sharfstein joins us this morning, Vice Dean at John Hopkins Bloomberg School of, of Public Health. Uh, Joshua Sharfstein, when we were kids, getting a booster shot wasn't even discussed. It's just something you did. Why are we having this discussion? Well, because at the beginning, we didn't know when it was going to happen. You know, most times uh, the entire series is well known before the vaccine is, you know, approved. Here we had an authorization that happened because of the speed that was necessary, you know, thinking there probably would be a booster shot necessary, but just not when. So then suddenly when it pops up, then everybody's kind of trying to figure it out in real time. Usually this would all happen, you know, well in advance. Do you have a clue the duration of two vaccines and a booster shot? Is that a duration out one year, out five years, lifetime? Um, well, we don't know because we don't have the time, but it's most likely, you know, pretty, pretty significant. I would think that for that particular strain, it's going to be, you know, uh, durable. You know, most people are saying at least for a couple of years. The, the real question mark here, though, is whether there is a mutation in the virus that makes the vaccine not so good, in which case, it's not really a booster. It's a different vaccine against a different form of the virus that we might need. Josh, uh, there is an issue right now, not only of the developed world, which frankly does seem to be on the decline when it comes to the number of COVID uh, cases, thankfully, but the rest of the world that might not have access to vaccines. Are the big biopharmaceutical companies doing the best that they can, in your view, to increase distribution and supplies to the other uh, countries that have not yet really seen penetration with vaccines? No, in my view, no, they're not. And it's really appalling, unfortunately. And particularly, I think the criticism uh, for Moderna has been pretty intense uh, because the company is selling just a very, very small amount of vaccine, sometimes at high prices, to uh, low-income countries. And there are many, many parts of the world that have very poor access to those two very effective vaccines. I think Pfizer is uh, considered to be doing a somewhat better job but really what we need is real manufacturing capacity in those countries so that they're not dependent on exports. And in the future, they can use that capacity if there is another strain that needs a vaccine or there are other vaccines that need to be made. And, you know, the, the government really funded the technology here in many different ways. It is really appropriate for that technology to be transferred effectively. Where is the burden here? Should it be on the public sector because this is a global health issue and it's not just a humanitarian one? It's also about health to get the, uh, the, uh, the, the COVID under control around the world. Or is this really on the specific private biopharmaceutical companies? Well, there's such a mix in terms of how this whole project worked. I mean, the technology was supported by you know investments from the public sector. The actual um, vaccines, you know, were only possible because of guaranteed purchases and in upfront investments in the case of Moderna from the public sector. And so that's where the technology is that you can't say to the public sector, well, you know, go fix it without the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines. Those are public sector creations. And so it is really, you know, all of our responsibility, you know, to the world, not just to be handing out vaccines, but to be helping them grow their capacity to make them themselves. We all have our way of measuring this natural disaster, Dr. Sharfstein. For me, I look at one statistic in one of the papers, and the good news is it's ebbing down, number of deaths per day. Do you have a target for number of deaths per day in the United States of America? 
Well, you know, I'm really looking forward to it going under 100. I mean, we're still at like 1,500 or something. Yeah, I'm using like 1,500, I mean, correct. Yeah, it, it's it's really high. I mean, I think that, uh, I, I mean, I'll feel like we're in a much better place when we're at under 100 a day, which is totally possible, you know, I think with, with, uh, with vaccination and with, you know, the little bit of passage of time here, you know, but, but we really do have to, um, you know, keep pushing forward. Doctor, just quickly, what is the efficacy of the J&J vaccine after six months? What are we finding out about that? Um, we're finding out that it's, I, I think, kind of uh, holding steady in the 70s somewhere, um, uh, particularly for hospitalization. And that is uh, not as good as the other vaccines, which is, I think, what you were hearing at the FDA advisory committee. So why are, we still, so why are we still using that here in America then, Doctor? Why are we not just pushing that one to, to one side and saying, look, the efficacy is not there. Why keep using it? That, you know, that's uh, not an unfair question to ask. I think that part of the reason is that it looks pretty good with two, two doses. So I think that, um, and, and that second dose may be from one of the other vaccines, it may be that the FDA will say it's, it's fine to, you know, use a booster with a different dose. But you're asking a good question. You know, why start out with it if we have these other vaccines? I'll give you one other reason, which is that there are some people who are allergic to some of the components of the mRNA vaccines. They cannot take them, in which case, you know, the Johnson Johnson vaccine is a, a good alternative. Got it. Doctor, thanks for that perspective. Appreciate it. Joshua Sharfstein there. On an important conversation here, Tom, as we start to find out more and more about just how effective these yeah. vaccines are six months after yeah. the first shot, the second shot. Bloomberg surveillance across this uh, nation and around the world. Colin Powell dead at 84. There are any number of wonderful guests we could line up in the scramble to speak of the general, not a five-star general, not general of the army, as of so many others, including one of his heroes, George Marshall, but nevertheless, Colin Powell. We get Bobby Ghosh, and this is a wonderful thing because in journalism, he's the one who actually did it. Others talked. He lived in Baghdad in the Red Zone for Time Magazine, and it wasn't the Red Zone because of Time Magazine's cover. It was the Red Zone of, of Danger as well. When did you first come directly in contact with this unique general? Was it Iraq or was it before? Well, I first lived the consequences of, of some of his decisions as a journalist in Iraq, but I didn't actually encounter him until after I had left the country. I think it was 2008 or 2009. I was still at Time Magazine. He had come to an event that Time Magazine was was hosting. And we spoke briefly about Iraq and, and uh, everything that unfolded there. It was, it was not the best place for a deep conversation. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, we were surrounded by a lot of other people. So I, I felt like he couldn't be as candid as he might have been. Right. You were candid not only with Nate Rawlings years ago about the changing of Iraq, but before that, this distinction at the time of General Powell's courage and his lack of naivete versus others like Mr. Bremer as well. How, how was he listened to as we went into Iraq? 
Well, he was given the the impossible task of trying to defend uh, the the decision to go in there. And then once we were there and once it was clear that the weapons of mass destruction were not there, he was in an impossible position of trying to then explain why we were still there. Um, he was not uh, an, an insider politician like Bremer was. He was a soldier, first and foremost. And, and the sense I got from him was that he was deeply... Uh, pain by the military losses and the loss of prestige that the United States uh, military had had to endure because of that decision. Um, you know, later on, as he would explain in his in his autobiography, this is something that exercised him deeply. He, to the end, he remained, although he be, he joined politics and he became a, a a powerful figure in Washington. To the end, he remained a soldier, and and the soldier's view of uh, foreign policy very much informed his thinking. Bobby, just to discuss, though, that one moment where he did help uh, President Bush, former President Bush, sell Operation Desert Storm and the invasions, uh, the subsequent invasions after the 2001 attacks. What is his legacy in terms of generals acting on the behalf of the president versus generals acting on the behalf of an independent body, which is something we have increasingly seen over the years? Well, it is, I guess, a cautionary tale for those who uh, come after him. Um, beware of politicians, I suppose, is the is the simplest way to think of it. And it undermines his legacy, and it's a shame uh, that it did at the time undermine his legacy as a soldier, as a commander. Uh, the Powell Doctrine uh, that he sort of authored during the first Gulf War was then undone uh, during the second Gulf War, the invasion of Iraq. Um, I think any military commander who has sort of then thereafter come into politics will have been and will continue to be deeply aware of the risk um, of being associated with a particular brand of politics. Um, and when you when you give up the uniform, you give up the neutrality, and you have to live with the consequences of it. General Powell is, uh, is dead also at a very uh, crucial moment for the U.S.'s intervention, or perhaps lack of intervention in certain places in the world. There has been a shift in foreign policy away from international uh, intervention to a more uh, domestic policy. How did he figure into this transition that we seem to be in an ongoing way, even under President Biden? Well, I think he it, it felt like he was a man out of time. He was a he was an old school uh, Republican. He believed in uh, small government. He believed in 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 low taxes and that sort of Republican. He was out of place in the sort of hyper partisan uh, social Republicanism that you see now. He he didn't have sort of he he didn't want really to get involved in the in the sort of dirty down sort of messy. Um, ideological battles that we are seeing take place mm -hmm. now, which is why he eventually left the party. He was deeply pained. It was clear by the uh, by the insurrection mm -hmm. uh, on the 6th of January. And then he decided that that was it. He didn't want to be part of the party anymore um, and became an independent. I'm, I'm sure that's, that brought him a lot of pain uh, mm -hmm. right at the end of his life. Edward Larrabee's classic book on FDR, The Commanders, talks about the generals. And there was Ike after the war, drafted aggressively to be a presidential candidate. You move forward decades to Barack Obama. In the middle is Powell, who was really never drafted to be president. Why not? I, I often wondered about that, and there was a moment when it seemed like it might be possible, um, but yes. he was reluctant himself to go that far. Um, 
you know, Obama came in, came and 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 went to the White House and became the sort of uh, the the figure that represents the possibility of minorities in this country. But until that 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 time, we forget now that Colin Powell was the first of those figures. Yes, that when he became Secretary of the State, he was the first African American to to uh, to reach that uh, uh, role and was an inspiration for everyone, including Lloyd Austin. I mean, the and, fact is, the, yes. gen- the second one, name of what you want, Secretary. Secretary of Defense, Austin, and so many others of so many different ethnicities and race, it began with him. Is that safe to say? I think that is very safe to say. So uh, his legacy in the military is enormous. you know, for, but for that one blip with uh, the the war in Iraq, unfortunately, it's a very big blip. It'll always be an asterisk in any description of him going forward. But I hope we don't forget that there was a there was a time when he represented the best of this country. Are you going to like it in New York? Bobby Gush, folks, has been living large in London here for for many different uh, weeks and years as well. You're moving to, to New York, right? This is day one. I'm, I'm, this is day one in New York. Days. I'm glad we to are, be home. We are hugely advantaged to have you with us on this important day. Bobby Gosh with years, I should say, in Baghdad for Time magazine, and we are thrilled he's with Bloomberg Opinion. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.